0: All right, today we're going to finish this little study on the doctrine of the Bible. And I have a question, a series of questions I'm going to ask and attempt to answer today. My first one for you is this. Is the Bible unique? Is the Bible unique? And to really answer that question, we need to define what does unique mean? And it's probably no surprise to you I like the old Webster's Dictionary from the 1800s, which uh, you can get online for free, by the way. Excellent resource. And here's how the old Webster's Dictionary defines the word unique. It means, well, it's got two definitions here. It means one and only. The second one is different from all others. The idea is it's having no like or equal. So if, if that's your definition of unique, I hope that we could agree that the Bible stands alone among all other books. There, There is nothing like or equal to the Bible. It stands alone. It's unique in that sense. And I want to give you a few ways that it is unique, and I find these very encouraging as we think about this. And I got uh, uh, some of these from uh, the uh, Evidence Demands a Verdict book. If you're ever familiar with McDowell's books, they're very helpful, but... Uh, the, the first one is this, that the Bible is unique in its continuity. It's unique in its continuity. The, the idea is it, it's continued, well, it, it was written over 1,500-year uh, span. Uh, so from the first book of the Bible, being like Genesis and Job time period, all the way up to the last one, which is Revelation. So we're talking 1,500-year span, but yet it's, it, it, it's, it's got continuity. It's written by more than 40 human authors that the Holy Spirit used, and from all different walks of life. I mean, you got guys like Moses, who was the prince of Egypt, uh, to just fishermen, shepherds, warriors, prime ministers, physicians, and even a guy who was a Jewish rabbi. It's all various walks of life, but yet it still remains in its continuity. It was written in different places, of course, because God used many different human authors. It was written different times, war and peace, written during different moods, even. It has different moods like joy, sorrow, despair, certainty, confusion. Just, it, it's got it all, doesn't it? Uh, written on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. Three different languages the original, original uh, manuscripts were written in. Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Written in a wide variety of literary styles, which we call genres. What a blessing that we have the Bible. You, you, if you like narrative, it's got it. If you like poetry, the Bible has it. If you like prophecy, the Bible has it. I mean, it, That's just to name three of the literary styles. If you like biography, romance, memoirs, songs, or parables, it's got it all. The Bible also addresses... A variety of subjects, some of them very controversial, aren't they? But the Bible helps us in in, all, in these areas like marriage and divorce and homosexuality and various sins that it addresses. It helps us as parents, helps us with our virtue and and what is authority. So, in spite of all of that diversity, the Bible presents a single unfolding story for us. Some of the Theologians call it the God's redemption, His redemption of human beings, people who are made in His image. Uh, It's also been described as paradise lost in Genesis, going all the way to the last book in the Bible where paradise is restored again, where there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And of course, the leading character throughout our Bible is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Jesus in Luke 24 said it's all about Him. All the way from the books of Moses, the prophets, the writings, is all about Jesus Christ. So the Bible is unique in its continuity. Number two, it is unique in its circulation. Notice these all have the letter C. So it's unique in its circulation. I found some statistics about the Bible itself. You probably know the Bible has sold more copies than any other book in history. God has blessed His Word. I'll just give you an example. One statistic, just from one year, this is way back in 1998, and it's coming from the United Bible Society, which is only one of the Bible distributors. But from one distributor, from one year, the Bible and various portions—you know, sometimes it's produced only the New Testament—but anyway, they they had said that they produced. 585 million copies of the Bible from that one distributor in that one year alone. Isn't that incredible? It still continues to top the bestseller list. Number three, the Bible is unique in its translation. Um, you, You probably know most books are never translated into other languages. But according to the United Bible Society, the Bible's has been translated into more than 2,200 languages and continues to be translated in various dialects and languages. Number four, the Bible is unique in its survival through time. Although it was first written on perishable materials like papyrus or animal skins, uh, had to be copied, recopied hundreds of years before the invention of the of the printing press the scriptures have never diminished in their style they haven't diminished in their correctness they've and they haven't even faced extinction so compared with other ancient manuscripts it's amazing that the bible has more manuscript evidence than uh, than all those other uh, ancient classical literature combined really it's incredible The Bible is, number five, unique in its survival through persecution. The Bible has been attacked uh, over the years. It's withstood those vicious attacks by its enemies. Really, God's enemies, aren't they? Many have tried to burn the Bible, ban the Bible, outlaw the Bible. Uh, One of the guys that comes to my mind is Voltaire. Voltaire was a noted French infidel who died in the late 1700s. He said, in 100 years from his time that Christianity would be swept from existence and passed into history. And I love what God did. God's a, God has a sense of humor sometimes, doesn't he? Because God used Voltaire's house and Voltaire's printing press 50 years after his death to print the Bible. <laughs> Don't you just love it? I love that. And of course, the Bible still goes, despite what Voltaire said. And so the Bible's enemies, they come and they go, of course, but the Bible has always remained. And so Jesus, he, he understood that. In Mark chapter 13, Jesus said that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Number six, the Bible is unique in its survival through Criticism. Wow, even, even criticism from, from people who claim to be Christians, not not just unbelievers. Some of you might be familiar. I love that, that old illustration. I don't know who came up with it, but the illustration about the Bible being the anvil. And the hammers just keep coming against it. And the hammers get worn out as they keep pounding against the anvil, but the anvil stands, <laughs> and it destroys the hammers. So the hammers of infidels have... Pecked away at the Bible for centuries, but the hammers are worn out, but the anvil still endures. Number seven, the Bible is unique in its teachings. Don't you love the fact what Peter said, as he was talking about the Holy Scriptures? He said, "God has given us everything we need for life and godliness." I mean, the Bible just tells us what we need to know. Isn't that beautiful? If you, if you want to be a good parent, it tells you about that. Or a good husband, a good uh, daughter, or a good son. If you want to be holy on the inward being, God tells you about that. If you How to please Him and how to worship Him. How to live amongst society and in com- your community. How to share the Gospel. What is the Gospel? You know, and the list goes on and on. The Bible is just filled with these teachings that God wants us to know. How to please Him and how to love people well we could talk a long time about that one but let me move on to our next question for what purposes is the bible necessary you might ask the question first of all do you believe the bible is necessary and if you do then for what purposes is the bible necessary how much can people know about god without the bible if you answer that question appropriately, then you'll understand why the Bible is necessary. Do we need to have a Bible to know that we are sinners in need of a Savior? Do we need a Bible to know that? How are you going to find salvation without the Bible? How are you going to really know God intimately without the Bible? How are you going to know God's will for your life without the Bible? Well, those things are, are really answered in that question. For what purposes is the Bible necessary? I like Wayne Grudem's definition. I'll give it to you here on the screen. Quote, The necessity of Scripture means that the Bible's necessary for knowing the gospel, for maintaining spiritual life, and for knowing God's will. But it is not necessary for knowing that God exists or for knowing something about God's character and moral laws. So let me just, I'm going to pick a few phrases out of that definition there and uh, expand upon that, and, and we'll think about some scriptures to go with those. Number one, the Bible's necessary for the knowledge of the gospel. In other words, we need the Bible to tell us how to be saved, how to be saved from our sin unto God, to be saved from God's wrath to Jesus Christ. It gives us that good news. Of course, Romans 10 talks about this. Romans 10, if you're, if you're not there, look at verse 13. Romans 10, verse 13. If you don't have a Bible, it's on the screen here for you. Here's what the Bible says. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. That ends verse 17. Well, that beautiful passage here, Gives, is indicating a, a, a line of thought, a line of reasoning. So let me just walk you through this line of reasoning from Romans 10. Number one, it assumes, if you look at verse 13, it assumes that one must call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. You see that? In fact, uh, we, we know from like Acts chapter 4, there is no other name under heaven whereby you must be saved. Jesus himself said in John 14, I am the way. No man comes to the Father except through me. So the scripture over and over goes over the exclusivity of Christ. There is no other name. You can't call him Allah or Buddha or Krishna or whatever other name you want to come up with. It has to be Jesus Christ of the Bible. The Bible assumes you must call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. Number two, notice... The, the second line of reasoning here is people can only call upon the name of Christ if they believe in Him. Believe is this idea of trusting, our, putting our faith in Him and in Him alone. The third line of reasoning is this, that people cannot believe in Christ unless they've heard of Christ. Well, that leads to the fourth point then. They, they can't hear of Christ unless there's somebody to tell them about Christ. They need a messenger. That's just what preacher means. So even you ladies can do that. So you can be a messenger for Christ. And then the last line of reasoning is this. The conclusion then is that saving faith comes by hearing the gospel message. And of course, that the hearing of the gospel message comes about through the through the delivering of that message about Jesus Christ. And so the the implication then would be this. The implication is that uh, uh, unless you hear the gospel, you can't be saved. That's how serious this is. Unless they hear the good news of Jesus Christ, you can't go to heaven. So the Bible is necessary then, in, in this regard, for the knowledge of this good news of Jesus Christ. Number two, the Bible's necessary for maintaining your spiritual life. It's it's that important. In fact, Jesus fully believed this. If you don't believe me, Jesus said this in Matthew 4, verse 4. He said, Man shall not live on bread alone, but in every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So as important as your physical food is, Jesus said the spiritual food is even more important. So what is is Jesus saying? He's, He's indicating our spiritual life is then maintained through this daily nourishment that should be coming to us from the Word of God. So just as your physical life is maintained through daily food, well, it's the same in your spiritual life. So if you neglect the regular reading, memorizing, meditating upon the Word of God, what's going to happen to your soul? Your soul's going to shrivel up. It's going to die. It's not going to be healthy. So let me encourage you, my friends, because we all fail. Okay? There's, there's days that I fail too, all right? Shame on me. I don't love God enough, as I should. And so when I fail, what, what should I do? i need to repent of my sin i haven't loved god when i when i'm neglecting the word of god in my life well i need to repent i need to return to god he he's ready and wait he's waiting for me to come back to him and so i need to i need to get back in the word and love him and and meditate upon his words to feed my soul let me encourage you to do the same don't give up my friends Righteous man falls seven times, but he gets back up. Number three, the Bible's necessary for certain knowledge of God's will. It's necessary for certain knowledge of God's will. See, in the Bible, we've got clear statements of God's will. In fact, God just spells it out for you sometimes, doesn't he? He just tells you, like in Thessalonians chapter 5, he just says, This is the will of God, your sanctification. Abstain from immorality. Right. Sometimes God just spells it out obviously. Sometimes He just gives you commands. Every time you see a command in Scripture, you don't have to pray about that. You know that's God's will for your life. All right. So God has not revealed all things to us, of course, but He has revealed enough for us to know His will. And so it's important then that we read and study the Bible so we know what God's will is for our life. Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine says this, which clearly shows us that God doesn't reveal everything about Himself to us because He says that the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. And so we should be content, by the way, with what God has revealed to us. Trust that God is keeping some things secret. He hasn't revealed everything about Himself and His will for, for whatever reasons that He knows. We can trust Him for that. And by the way, let me just, just give you a caution here. The Bible is, yes, necessary for certain knowledge of His will, but let me remind you, be careful when you read. There are, there are clear commands in Scripture that you must obey. All right? But there are also things the Bible just declares that are not commands. Let's take, for example, the book of Acts. All right, the Bible is just describing things there. All right, sometimes people take the descriptive parts of the Bible and turn them into commands. That's very dangerous. Don't do that. All right, that's a little warning to you. All right, so people get all sorts of strange ideas and say, well. The Bible commands me to wear sandals or a robe or whatever, okay? Because the Bible describes that, therefore I have to do this, right? Don't do that. So you've got to distinguish the very styles of literature that you find in the Bible. Use a little discernment there. Use a good hermeneutic. Alright, number four. The Bible's not necessary for knowing that God exists. So, you might ask, well, what about people who do not read the Bible? Or, or even, what about those people who maybe don't even, who don't even, uh, who can't read? Or they don't have the Bible in their dialect. Well, people can obtain a knowledge that God exists. The Bible talks about this, the, a knowledge of some of God's attributes, just simply by observing them and, and, and looking at the world around them. For example, look what David says in Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. So when you look at God's creation around you, and and, and people can see that no matter where they are in the world, can't they? Even if their eyes aren't working, they can still touch his creation. They can feel his creation. So they're without excuse. Notice uh, in Acts chapter 14 what Paul and Barnabas tell those Greek inhabitants about the living God who made the heavens and the earth. Acts 14 verse 16 says this, In past generations he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Notice, God said He did not leave Himself without witness. His creation witnesses about Himself that He exists. And so even those, by the way, who by their wickedness, the Bible says, suppress the truth, can't avoid this evidence. The evidence is screaming at them. In fact, some Bible translations say it is plain to them. They can see God's existence and His very nature in the created order. So if you have your Bibles, look at Romans chapter 1. If not, it's on the screen here for you. Romans 1, verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived... Ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Notice what Romans 1 is saying. Even the most wicked people on planet earth have at least some internal knowledge. They have a perception, if you will. They they know some things. They know that God exists. They know that there is a powerful Creator. They, They probably don't know Him with a personal knowledge that has saved them, of course. But all people on planet Earth, past, present, and future, know there is a powerful Creator. And so there's no such thing as an atheist. Atheist means, just the word letter A means no. Theist is the word for God. So They they don't believe in God. So according to Romans 1, there's no such thing as an honest atheist. They are suppressing the truth. They're trying to do what some have described. If you've ever been in a swimming pool, if you ever had a ball in a swimming pool, and you try to push the ball to the bottom of the swimming pool that's very difficult to do and to keep it there is is difficult the ball why because the ball keeps wanting to pop up to the surface and that's the way it is with the knowledge of god people want to suppress it they want to push it down out of sight out of mind right but god keeps popping up in their face and that's the way it is number 5 the bible's not necessary for knowing something about god's character and his moral laws so even even countries who don't claim to be christian have a lot of moral laws how how did they get those moral laws like don't murder for example <laughs> right how about tell the truth when you're in court you know where where does that sort of stuff come from it comes from god god's given them a conscience he's He's put eternity on their hearts. And so the Apostle Paul goes on there in Romans chapter 1 to show that even unbelievers have, uh, who, who have no written record of God's law, who don't even have the Bible, they still have this conscience that, that God has put inside them to help them to understand God's moral demands. So look at Romans 1 verse 32. Verse 32. God says this, Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So notice the first part there, verse 32. It says, They know God's righteous decree. Everybody does, to a certain extent. And then, in verse 32, did you notice what it said of the wicked people who practice sin. Wicked people know that their sin is wrong. They know it because God's given them a conscience. By the way, you might be asking, well then, okay, God's given them a conscience. They know they're sinning. So then why do people sin? Jesus answered that in John chapter 3. Jesus said in John 3, Men love, or mankind, love darkness. Why? Because they love themselves, essentially. We love ourselves. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. We love our sin. We love ourselves what sin does for us. That's why. And then Paul goes on in chapter 2 of Romans, he, he talks about, the activity of the conscience in non-Jews or Gentiles who don't even have the written law of God. What about them? Are they without excuse? Romans 2 verse 14 says, For when Gentiles, non-Jews, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So notice, God has written His law on people's hearts through their conscience. Of course, we know the Bible says sometimes people sear their conscience like like you you can sear your skin with a with a hot piece of metal you keep doing that eventually you become desensitized and that's what eventually people do and Romans 1 says God will turn them over to their defiled minds to do whatever they want to do when they get to that point God's just turning them over so conclusion then saving faith is always confidence or trusting God that rests on the truthfulness of God's own words. How how is somebody saved? Where where does saving faith come from? It comes from a trust in God. And where does that rest? It rests on the very truthfulness of God's own words. Let's move on to a third question. Is the Bible, then, enough for knowing what God wants us to think or do? Is the Bible enough... In other words, this is this idea where we get the sufficiency of Scripture from. Sufficiency of Scripture just means, is the Bible enough for you? In other words, are we to look for other words from God in in addition to what God has given us in Holy Scripture? We call this the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. Let me give you a definition of this. According to Wayne Grudem, it is this the sufficiency of Scripture means that Scripture contains all the words of God we need for salvation, for trusting Him perfectly, and for obeying Him perfectly, end quote. By the way, the definition, and just think about that as you, you stare at that for a moment, it, it's in Scripture alone that we are then to search for God's words, So we don't go outside that. We don't look in the Apocrypha or other so-called other writings from other religions or, or wherever else you might want to get that from. We don't go looking outside the Bible. It also reminds us then that God considers what He's told us in the Bible to be enough for us. As Peter, the Apostle Peter said, God's given us everything we need for life and godliness. And then we should rejoice in the great revelation that God's given to us. Be content with what he has given to us. And so we need to, uh, what I want to do now is, I'm going to give us some scriptures to kind of prove this doctrine to you, okay? Just so you know that this isn't just man's ideas. The sufficiency of scripture is found in scripture itself. Scripture teaches us that it is enough. Number one point number 1 to make here is that scripture contains all the words of god that we need for salvation. In fact, look what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3:15 as he's writing to Timothy who is a believer he's he's come to faith in Jesus Christ and Paul says this from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are Able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So in that specific verse, the Holy Spirit is telling us that these sacred writings, the Holy Scriptures, the Bible in other words, is able to lead someone to salvation in Jesus Christ. Well, let's move on. Number two. As Paul goes on in verse 16, he also tells us that Scripture is sufficient to equip us for living the Christian life. How are we going to live the Christian life? How are we going to worship God and please Him with our lives and serve Him? How are we going to do that? How are we going to know what that looks like? Well, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So Notice the text there in Second Timothy chapter 3. It tells us that one purpose for which God has given us the Scripture, and He's written it down for us, is it trains us that we would be equipped for every good work. Well, that means there's no good work that God wants us to do for Him that is not written down in the Bible. He's given you everything that you need there, that He wants you to do. It's in the Scripture. It equips us for living the Christian life. Number three, we can find all that God has said on particular topics, And we can find answers to our questions. Again, the Bible says in Peter that He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. So whatever topic, question that that God wants you to know, He's given it to you. And so the sufficiency of Scripture is very helpful for us because it enables us then to, to focus our search for God's words on the Bible alone. We don't have to, to, to go searching in all the libraries of the world or wherever. Uh, God's given us what we need here to, to save us from this endless searching that some people go through. Wow, that would be discouraging, wouldn't it? If, if you didn't think the Bible was, was enough, then wow. You'd go on endlessly searching and never finding all your answers. And so in a practical sense, it means we're able to come to clear conclusions. Whatever your question or your topic is you want to know about, you can just go through the whole Bible. I encourage you to do that. If you don't know how to do that, I'll, I'm quite happy to help you. But concordances are helpful in this way. Or a, a topical Bible is also a helpful way to do that. Or there's, there's free online resources that will help guide you through that process. You just type in a word or a subject, and and they'll bring up all the scriptures on that particular topic or subject. And you just look through all the scripture, God will tell you what He wants you to know. If you have the Holy Spirit, you have a Bible, you have enough. And so in a practical sense, it just means we're able to come to clear conclusions. It's possible to find all the biblical passages on on uh, whatever it is, like marriage or parenting, whatever. Let's just think uh, as we, we close this message today, I want to give you several practical applications then that are coming from the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. Number one, it should encourage us as we try to discover what God would have us to think or do. As believers, we, we need to be concerned about that. We we, we should want to know the mind of Christ. Philippians chapter two tells us, let the mind of Christ be in us. Well, how's that going to happen? It's going to come to us from the scripture. And so we should be encouraged that everything that God wants to tell us about whatever question can then be found in Scripture. And there there are going to be times when the answer we find is uh, the Scripture does not speak directly to to our question. Scripture doesn't tell us every single piece of knowledge in the world. right? But it's going to give you guiding principles. It's going to give you promises. It gives you commands. It gives you all this sort of thing that will guide you. And then you just... If, if there's some question still remaining in your mind, you need to pray. Pray for the God of truth to give you wisdom. Let, let me just give you one question that uh, a lot of people wonder about, uh, just as an example. You know, the Bible doesn't tell us how often that we're to celebrate the Lord's Supper. The right? Bible tells us a lot about the doctrine of the church, but the bible just says as often as you do this do it in remembrance of me it doesn't say do it every week it doesn't say do it once a month it doesn't say do it quarterly once a year right it doesn't tell you that it just says do it right so how do churches then and how do believers determine how often to celebrate the lord's supper well just each individual church just needs to make up their own mind what to do on that, don't they? And so, again, Deuteronomy 29, 29 comes into play here. The secret things belong to the Lord. Does, does God have an opinion how, on how often to celebrate the Lord's Supper? I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. But it is important that we, that we try to know the mind of Christ On this and other matters. Number two. Again, let's think about application of this doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. So this doctrine reminds us that we are to add nothing to Scripture and that we are to consider no other writings of equal value to Scripture. So here's where Revelation 22 is important to us. So this is coming right at the end of the Bible, which I think is significant. So look what the end of the Bible itself says about itself. Revelation 22, 18 says this, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city. Notice there, God's saying, don't add and don't take away from the Bible. So that means that the canon of Scripture is closed. This, this standard that all the 66 books you have in your Bible, that's it. God's not going to write any more. We don't need any more. It's, it's all there. Everything's there that He wants you to have. Well, sadly, that, that particular principle, by the way, is violated by most of the cults and the sects. I'll just give you one example. For example, the Mormons. They claim to believe the Bible, but you probably also know they, they also claim divine authority in another book that their founder, Joseph Smith, supposedly has written. We call it the Book of Mormon. So they, they've, they also give that particular book divine authority. Equal, at least equal to the Bible itself. And so, in the process, what have they done? They've added to God's Word. And some Christians sadly make similar errors when they go beyond what Scripture says. They're making the same error that the Mormons make. And so, it's important that we don't base truth on our experiences. Very dangerous when uh, you start coming equal with scripture with your experiences or even going above scripture Say some people would say well hey I experienced this or I had this dream or whatever I feel this way about something therefore I know it goes against the Bible but I'm going to go with my experience Right? very dangerous you've just gone against God if you do that so we need to base truth then on the Bible not our experiences number three The doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture tells us that God does not require us to believe anything about Himself or His redemptive work that is not found in Scripture. What a blessing. We know we have the good news. We don't have to to, to go searching anywhere else except the Bible to find out the good news about Jesus Christ. We know who Jesus is. We know who God is. We know the work that that he has accomplished and is continuing to do for us, he's written it down for us in the Bible, in these 66 books. We don't need to go looking in the Apocrypha, which is man's writings that, that uh, sometimes are tried to, they try to be added to the Bible. We don't need that stuff. We don't need to look anywhere else. We have everything we need. Number four. This doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture shows us that no modern revelations from God are to be placed on a level equal to Scripture in authority. Well, the charismatic movement, sadly, claims that God's given revelations through them for the benefit of the church. And sometimes, I have a lot of charismatic friends, okay, and I I love them dearly, but my my warning antenna go up every time they come to me and they say i have a word from god for you and by the way so should you <laughs> and so when they do that you say <clears throat> chapter and verse please chapter and verse just take them back to the scripture show them this is your authority just gently tell them i'm not going to believe it unless it's here in the scriptures be gentle with them. Be very gentle, loving, gracious. Let your words minister grace to them. But sadly, that's, the charismatic movement is claiming they have this new revelation that is somehow benefiting the church. They're adding to Scripture. And so we must never allow those revelations to be equal with the Bible. The Bible contains all the words of God that we need for trusting him and obeying him perfectly. Number 5. This doctrine teaches us that nothing is sin that is not forbidden by scripture either explicitly or by implication. Implication is just something you can you're drawing out of the scriptures. Explicit stuff is obvious, the implicit stuff is not so obvious, okay? That's that's all I mean by that. What, what a blessing that is. So let me just read Psalm 119. The very first verse says this, Blessed are those whose way is blameless who walk in the law of the Lord. So what does this blameless, blessed person look like? It's somebody who is living. He's walking, continually walking and living in God's law, in the Bible, in the scripture. Therefore we we are not to add commands or prohibitions to those already in the Bible. Sadly, people do that all the time. That's that's one of the things by the way, remember Jesus had issues with the Pharisees over that very thing. Cuz what were they doing? They were they were taking man's traditions, traditions and making them equal with Scripture. And sometimes those things were more important to them than the very implications of Scripture. I'll just take one, for example, so you understand this. So, for example, the Bible talked about the Sabbath. And Jesus several times had to teach these people, no, you got it all backwards. You got got the cart before the horse, because is, is it the Sabbath made for man or man for the Sabbath? Which is it? Well, they, they got the cart before the horse, making big deals over the Sabbath, you know, not doing good works for people who are in need, not healing people or feeding people or helping people. So Jesus showed them the error of their ways there. They weren't drawing the implications of those commands from the Scripture, and then they're adding other stuff on so they can they can obey the Sabbath command. Very dangerous, but we've been doing that for a, long, for, for a long time. We do the same sort of things, just different ways. And so this is an important principle because we have this tendency to neglect the daily searching of Scripture, looking for God's guidance, praying for the Holy Spirit to to show us what's pleasing to Him so we can and then begin to live by some set of written or unwritten rules we love rules <laughs> a lot of people do we love rules we like list checklist so people they they think well even even as we talked about earlier some people think that's that's how you're saved right just check the list if you're not checking your list off then you're not saved that's sad what a horrible way to live well furthermore whenever we add to our list of sins that are prohibited by Scripture itself, there, there's going to be harm to the church. There's going to be harm to the church. I'll just give you one, I think I, I think it's a clear example, where the Roman Catholic system has added to the commands of Scripture. For example, you probably are familiar, they've, they have this idea that, uh, well, let me just put it this way, they're opposed to artificial methods of birth control. Now, that that might change in the near future, Uh, like a lot of things that seem to be changing in their system, but they have this policy that finds, really, no support in Scripture. There's no support in Scripture for artificial methods of birth control, but they have made it a command, and frustrated people in the process. What what ends up happening is there's often widespread disobedience, alienation, and some people have carry this false guilt because this is what the cardinals and the popes have declared that you need to do. And so people who don't follow that have this false guilt placed upon them because they're not obeying the church. Sad. Number six. This doctrine tells us that nothing is required of us by God that's not commanded in Scripture either explicitly or by implication. So this this truth here reminds us then that where are we going to search for God's will? Search in the Scripture. We don't have to look at our circumstances or feelings. We don't, we don't need to do what Gideon did, you know, throw out a fleece, so to speak, <laughs> or uh, cast lots or whatever, you know, form you want to do. So what do you do when somebody claims to have a message from God? Or even if somebody walks up to you and says, Hey, i got a message for you from God. A word. We must not assume that it's a sin to disobey necessarily a message. And so my friend, when, when you understand this truth, it, it's going to bring you great joy and peace, knowing that God God's not going to require me to do something that isn't in the Scripture. He's not hiding His will from me. God is a good God. And so we don't have to spend countless hours seeking God's will outside of Scripture. Wow, man, I'm thankful for that. You're not going to have to be uncertain about whether or not you found God's will. If you want to know if you're pleasing God, if you're worshiping God, if you want to know how to serve God, read the Bible. So Christians who are convinced then of the sufficiency of Scripture are able to find God's will. Man, that is so comforting. And when you do, by the way, then you will agree with the psalmist here. In Psalm 119, look what he says. Verse 44, I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. Notice the result in verse 165. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. Isn't that what the world wants? We all want peace. We all want peace. God says, well, it comes to those who love His law, who love His word. Great peace will come. Number seven, this doctrine reminds us to emphasize what Scripture emphasizes and to be content with what God has told us in Scripture. Be content with what God has told us in Scripture. Now, my friends, there's some subjects which God has told us very little, frankly. Some things, there's just nothing in the Bible, okay? You know the Bible is not a science book. It's It's not a book on geography or biology or zoology or... You name it, okay? That's not the Bible. This is theology. It's the study of God. So so if you want to study all those other disciplines of knowledge, you can go read good stuff on that. But God said He's given us everything we need here for life and godliness, not to study animals or biology or that sort of thing. And so, again, Deuteronomy 29 is helpful, that the secret things belong to the Lord. And so we must accept this, this truth. Accept it. Be content with that. Don't think Scripture is something less than it should be. Don't wish that somehow God has given you something else that that He is lacking in some way to you. He's not. We should agree with the psalmist in Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We don't. We don't need, we're not wanting, not lacking in any way. By the way, one of the characteristics of many cults is they they often emphasize obscure teachings of Scripture. Again, I'll I'll give you an example. You might wonder why is it that the Mormons believe in baptism for dead people. Where do they get that from? Well, they get that from one obscure verse in the Bible, which is very questionable. In case you're wondering, it's in 1 Corinthians. I won't tell you the verse. I don't want you to look at it. Be distracted by it. All right, but it, there is a verse in 1 Corinthians that's very obscure. And so Mormons emphasize baptism for, for the dead based on this one verse in the Bible. It's not a command. Just descriptive. But but they do this all the time. This is very characteristic of the cults. Unfortunately, there's a similar pattern that too often occurs even amongst evangelicals. By evangelicals, I mean, I'm talking about gospel people, believers. So the doctrinal matters that have divided Protestant denominations are often over these non-essentials. I'll give you an example. Protestants have divided over Church government. So we get various denominations based on different styles of church government, or what is the nature of Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper? Right? If you read church history, it was it was very sad to hear that Ulrich Zwindley and, and Martin Luther divided over this very issue. These guys were so close to one another, doctrinally speaking. But they couldn't agree on the exact nature of Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper. And so they divided over that. I find that sad. Uh, But then there's there's all kinds of Christians who divide over other things, like end times. Again, it's it's sad. But notice, all those things are non-essentials. And so there's there's this pattern where... Protestant dominations have come into being and, and, and there's still division amongst Protestants over these non-essentials. My, so my friends, let me remind you. These non-essential matters are important. Okay? Yes, yeah, study the Bible. What does the Bible say on church government? What does it say on baptism? What does it say on the Lord's Supper or in times? Those are important, but they're non-essentials. And we need to keep that in mind. And so there, you get this, very helpful saying that comes from the Reformation that says this, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, diversity. In all things, love. I have a lot of dear Christian friends who we don't see eye to eye on non-essentials. Some of them I just mentioned. But I still love them, I still pray for them, still fellowship with them. And that's the way it should be. We're going to see them in heaven. I'm going to fellowship with those brothers and sisters for all eternity. I'm going to worship the Lord Jesus Christ with them, side by side with them one day in heaven. One day I'm going to be sorted out. God's going to sort me out. He will. I'm going to know the truth. I could be wrong, even though I'm very opinionated on these things. But, you know, humility helps helps us to see things correctly. Grace is very important here. And so, my friends, let me encourage you to be in the Word, to believe that it is enough for God wants you to think and what He wants you to do. This is enough. Believe that the Bible is necessary for certain things, many things, not all things. Believe that the Bible is unique. And then... As we believe these things, that will cause us to act in a certain way then, won't it? Because truth, what we believe, is always going to affect our actions, what we think and what we do. That's the way it should be. You've heard me say this as well many times, that doctrine, theology, drives methodology. In other words, what you believe, what you know, is going to cause you to act in a certain way. And that's that's one reason why Satan and this world and your indwelling sin is is attacking the Bible. So we've got to be firm in this foundation. We're going to sing in just a moment how firm a foundation. That foundation is God's words. God's words to you. He loves you so much, He's given you this word so that you would know Him. May God open our eyes. We would be hold wonderful things from His law. So let me pray. Our heavenly Father, we're so thankful that You have given us the Holy Bible, Scripture, the words, the, the the Word of God in our language, even with so many beautiful resources to help us to understand it. So may we be people of this book. May this be our authority. May May we find it to be enough, everything we need for life and godliness. May we go to it to find what it is, how you want us to think, and how you want us to to live and behave and act. May we love you so much that we we want to continue to grow in our knowledge of of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Conform us in the image of Christ through your word, through the power of the Holy Spirit working within us. We pray that we'd be a people who who would really, truly love You with all of our heart. Not just our heart, but our minds. Our entire being. May this love spread to other people. May we want to share this Word. So we pray that You would use us. Work in our hearts, that we would be a people that We grow to, to love You and to love people as we should. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.